It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In the latter half of the 14th century, a series of technological developments, as well as ripe social and economic conditions, saw the foundations being laid for the future Dutch takeover of the Northern European herring industry. Up until then, the herring trade had been dominated by the Danes, Swedes, and the Hanseatic towns of Northern Germany and the Baltic Sea, with Dutch and other European consumers happily importing salted herring from those places. Within 200 years, this situation would be completely reversed. The fishing and exporting of salted herring would become one of the cornerstones of the Dutch economy, and Dutch cured herring would come to reach dinner tables all across Europe. This remarkable reversal of fortunes was so integral to the emergence of a Dutch national identity that it would require its own position within the narrative of the emerging Dutch state. From the 17th century onwards, a myth was perpetuated, which credited all of it to a man called Willem Bokelzoon of Beerfleet. He was a humble herring fisherman who at some point in the 14th century apparently discovered the process of gibbing, which made this whole economic turnaround possible. Although this legend has been debunked by modern historians, its perpetuation demonstrates the importance which the so-called royal herring enjoyed in the creation of a Dutch national identity. So in this episode of the History of the Netherlands, we are once again going to depart from the power games of the nobility and the wranglings of urban elite and workers' guilds, and we're going to focus on something even more slippery. The herring. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 16, The Fishy Tale of Willem Bokelzoon. Your life is dark, wet, and full of terrors. Because you are a fish, during the day you stay some 40 meters below the surface, in the murky depths of the North Atlantic Ocean. Your kind can be found all throughout the Atlantic Ocean, but for our purposes, we'll imagine you to be somewhere in the North Sea, around the British Isles, up towards Iceland, around Denmark, Sweden, or even into the Baltic Sea. Your days are mostly spent doing various aquatic activities like swimming in large schools with literally millions of your friends and family and also doing your best to avoid being eaten by creatures like whales, seals, sharks and other petrifying predators. In the evenings, you move closer to the surface where you feast on krill and other smaller fish. So... Exactly what kind of fish are you? You are known as Kulpia Harangus. 
Atlantic herring. And although you probably don't know it because, well, you're a fish, you are a creature which is highly sought after by other non-watery animals, namely humans. Because the fact of the matter is, you are a good fish to eat. There are various distinct populations of you and your fishy friends, and the specifics of your life cycle depend on which region you're from and the time of year. Being a fish, you don't have time for petty human things like love or emotion. You can't waste your time looking for a partner with whom you'll make babies and grow old and live together forever. Instead, you reproduce in a spectacular ceremony known as spawning. This is essentially a massive fish orgy in which each female will release up to 40,000 eggs into the sea, while at the same time, males will have their own thrill and spill a veritable quilt of milt into the water. It's all very romantic. In the lead up to this moment of herring, sharing and caring, you reach your peak physical condition and get big, fatty, oily, and quite frankly, delicious. Tragically, for this reason, if you are an Atlantic herring swimming around in the 13th and 14th centuries, smack bang in the midst of this glorious stage of your life in which you are about to embark upon a frantic, frolicking frenzy of fishy fornication, that life could be abruptly thrown into complete turmoil, with you and thousands of your kin being suddenly and without warning grabbed by a giant net, pulled out of the water, loaded onto a boat, and promptly asphyxiated to death. Rest in peace, my Piscine pal. Your best laid plans for procreation were not to be. But although your life has now ended suddenly, the human interest in you is only just now really beginning. Once you die, your body begins the natural process of decomposition. If the fishermen who pulled you out were to wait too long, your body would begin to break down, become rather stinky, and the appeal of eating you would become rapidly diminished. Perhaps this would give you a moment of sweet post-mortem revenge, but if your carcass is to remain valuable to those who have caught you, then they would need to do something in order to sell you fresh or to somehow keep you edible. You could possibly be smoked or even salted, forms of preservation that would allow your flesh to be consumed at a later, more convenient time. But this took place on land, so fishermen still could not venture too far. They had the need to frequently be able to drop their catch off in order to either sell it fresh to market or to fish curers. Herring fishermen of the early 14th century were limited to working coastal waters, staying within range of a port. If someone were to figure out a way, however, to make your fishy corpse stay good for even longer, this could be a revolutionary thing. Enter Willem Bokelzone, a herring fisherman from Beerfleet, which is today part of Zeeland, but back then was a part of Flanders. According to the popular story, at some point in the latter half of the 14th century, Meneer Bokelzone, for some reason or other, began to go about things differently to other fishermen or fish curers. He is credited with discovering something called karkin, or gibbing a method of gutting and deboning herring that 
left parts of its stomach and one of its internal organs, something called the pyloric KK, intact. Removing the guts and bones took away bits that would begin to rot first, while the remaining pyloric KK would continue to emit an enzyme called trypsin. This is normally used to help you, the fish, to digest food. But now in your death, it treacherously serves to better preserve your flesh. So important was this discovery of gibbing that in addition to appearing in a stained glass window of a church and having his own statue in Beerfleet, and as well as featuring in several chronicles of Dutch history, in 2005, Willem Bokelzoon was named by a Dutch television show as the 157th greatest Netherlander of all time. That is a remarkable achievement. It becomes even more remarkable when we look even deeper into who he was and what he is supposed to have discovered. Because, quite frankly, there is no firm record of when exactly this particular Willem Bokelzoon lived or what exactly he did. I say particular because there are numerous Willems and other Bokelzoons who lived in the 14th century in Zeeland. The extent to which any of them were involved with fishing, gibbing, salting, packing, or otherwise is pretty unclear. Secondly, and more importantly, there is absolutely no way that this method of gibbing was invented in the Netherlands, or even by a Dutchman. Yep, if anyone tells you that Willem Bokelzoon invented this method, then they are merely fibbing about gibbing. What this means, astoundingly, is that this all-important process of gibbing, which to this day provides us with one of the most traditional and Dutch of all traditional Dutch foods, the Hollandser Neuer, or pickled herring, something so Dutch that it is often proudly served on a plate with a little Dutch flag skewered into it, almost certainly originated in today's Sweden. So yeah, Dutch pickled herring. Bet you didn't know that wasn't Dutch. Nonetheless, the character of Willem Bokelzoon has gone down as a legend of Dutch history, as someone who helped to set the Netherlands on a path of greatness, all by the way that he gutted a fish. But given that there is no actual evidence to support this story, why does it exist? What is so important and earth-shattering about Gibbing Herring that a fictional character of national importance could emerge about it centuries later and remain to this day? Humans have been fishing since the Paleolithic era, but these early attempts at fishing were mostly focused on the easiest to catch fish in the easiest to reach areas. Most fishing occurred in riverways, where people tended to settle, or in shallow coastal waters, which were easy enough to exploit from small open boats. As we have seen in a previous episode, from around the year 1100, people in the Low Countries began their first systematic attempts at changing the environment they were living in, by going beyond building turps to constructing small dikes, and then large dikes, and then dams and slouses and other methods to control flooding and manage the water level. This meant that by the Middle Ages, the population of river fish was dwindling, due to the pollution that urban centres created in the large waterways. 
But even more problematic was that the flood control methods, those dams, dikes and slouses, had begun to mess with the natural flow of the waters and to impact the life cycles of the freshwater fish that lived in them. By this time, as we know, this was a Christian realm. According to the traditions that had developed, people were prohibited from eating meat on certain days of the week, as well as during other holy periods such as Lent, Good Friday, Advent, and so on. According to the Christian tradition, fish did not count as meat. And besides looking at how this perspective might psychologically affect you, a fish, it allowed medieval pescatarians to rejoice, and on the 130 days a year when meat was prohibited, fish was permitted to be consumed. Because everybody knows that fish don't have feelings. The big problem with fish, however, was that it was not cheap. A huge amount of effort had to go into getting it out of the water and into a market without it going off. Grains were way cheaper in general. Even in times of grain shortage, when the price of bread skyrocketed, fish was still, with a few exceptions, more expensive. For this reason, whatever fishing was done was first on simply a subsistence level, where the fishermen themselves would eat what they caught or use it to feed their family, or perhaps as a duty to the lord they served or a gift to the local abbey or church. It is estimated that fish would make up somewhere between 3-5% to 5% of the calories people would consume. But it cost 10-20% to 20% of their food budget, which is a terrible ratio. For this reason, it was often seen as a rich person's food, and this is testified to in many old paintings in which table displays exhibit lavish banquets with a fish in the centre. With the rise of urbanisation in the low countries, however, a new moneyed class of people had begun to form, that good old commercially driven urban elite, which we were determined not to talk about in this episode, but who have somehow managed to wiggle their way in here regardless. If a fisherman had caught an excess of food, which the Lord did not require, this new class of people were able to afford the expense themselves, and the fish market grew that bit bigger. Sea fishing began in the lowlands sometime just after the turn of the millennium. Sea fish like cod, place, haddock, and herring, of course, became of ever greater importance. This kicked off in the south earlier than in the north. In Flanders, there is evidence of it from about the 11th century, and in Holland and Zeeland from the 13th century. Small-scale Dutch fishing operations would have fished off the Dutch and English coasts. Herring was best caught in these waters in the winter months, when the fish were beginning to spawn and so were at their fattiest. This was also when the supply of other forms of fresh meat began to dwindle. Not yet having access to gibbing knowledge, however, the majority of fish caught would be sold at markets either fresh or lightly salted and semi-preserved, a product often known as corfharing. Lowlander fishermen very often landed off the coast of England and sold their catch into the markets there. After not long, however, the increase of sea fishing off the lowland coast and the English coast was not providing sufficient for the growing demands of a rapidly urbanising society in Flanders and then also in Holland, Brabant, Zeeland and Gelders. Over time, Flemish and Dutch fishermen pushed into deeper waters. 
they learned that as they went further away and north up the English and Scottish coast, they were then able to follow massive herring shells south again. The fish would move south as they spawned, so if the fishermen timed it correctly, they would be able to catch bigger and fattier fish. The distances they were now travelling in pursuit of herring, however, was making it more and more difficult to land in England or to bring a fresh catch back to the low countries. This was compounded by other problems that arose in the late 13th and early 14th centuries. Piracy was one of them, but significantly so too was the strife that erupted between England and France and Flanders, in which the rest of the lowlands also became embroiled, really from the 1250s onwards, but intensifying with the onset of the Hundred Years' War in the 1330s. Basically, Dutch and Flemish fishermen wanting to head ever further out into northern waters could not rely on being able to make land as frequently as the ports of England were sometimes close to them, and anyway, they were still chasing these fatter fish into further deeper waters. They needed to figure out a way to keep their fish good and to stay at sea for longer. Speaking of trying to keep boats afloat for longer periods of time, here's an ad break. We'll see you on the other side. While Dutch fishermen were struggling with questions of how to keep their fish edible for longer, all evidence suggests that gibbing was already happening in other parts of northern Europe. It was certainly happening in a place called Scania, the southern part of what is today Sweden, but back then was a part of Denmark. There, on a daily basis, thousands of small open boats with perhaps five to six men each aboard, would set off to float around and catch herring in the strait between today's Denmark and Sweden, a body of water known as the Sound. Here, as historian Richard Unger puts it, herring stocks would be so thick in number that fishermen had trouble moving their rudders in the dense water. You as a fish would have loved being right in the middle of it, you dirty fish, you. The literal boatloads that they caught would be taken to a place called, and I'm going to struggle with this, Skanur Peninsula? I don't know. We asked Dave, obviously, who's Swedish, to pronounce it, and he gave us this response. Skanur. Thanks, Dave. The Skanur Peninsula was where the fish would be gibbed. We haven't actually described what the process of gibbing was, and it's worth going into for a moment here because it looks Quite disgusting, but also satisfying. Check out our website for a video of somebody doing this, but essentially the process involved the fish being picked up in one hand, while the other knife-wielding hand would stick said knife into a precise location in the gills. The curer would then push down with their thumb on the underside of the fish, and then twist the knife in such a way that when it was pulled from the fish, the insides just suddenly become outsides. The fish would then be tossed into a barrel of salted water and fish blood, which was its brine. And that is how it was made. How this process of gibbing really was discovered or who actually came up with it is absolutely unknown. 
but like most developments in human technique and knowledge, it was almost certainly a combination of mistake and observation over time. In later centuries, it would be noted what an incredible pace Dutch fishermen would gut fish. They would be able to do approximately one fish every two seconds, a lightning pace which no doubt ended up in many cut and detached thumbs. It is likely that the industrial level of processing herring in Scania would have been much the same. Gutting so many fish so quickly would mean that you couldn't pay too close attention to getting everything out. So parts of the stomach and other internal organs would have been mistakenly left in. Whether by one person, a few people, or many, it was eventually noticed what a difference it made to preservation and to taste if the pyloric KK was left in. What remained after the whole process of gibbing was finished, coming from Scania, was called tonharing, a product which could last for up to one year. Once packed, barrels of tonharing could then be submitted to the trade routes of the Hanseatic League and make their way off to markets around Europe. Being so well preserved meant it could travel far distances, going from merchant to merchant, before ending up as food for people who had never heard of Scania or knew what a North Sea was. The Low Countries, and particularly Flanders, was one of the most important destinations along the way. Flanders, as we know, was the major market of the Lowlands and one of Europe's biggest hubs of international trade. It was the place where merchants from the Northern Hanseatic League met merchants from the Lowlands, England, France, Italy, Spain, and elsewhere. For this reason, the Hanseatic League established a contour, a trading outpost in Bruges, with merchants and businessmen based there to protect the interests of the League, not least of which was its import of tonharing. But Dutch fishermen, besides scouring their local coast, were also working in and around Scania. In his article, The Netherlands Herring Fishery in the Late Middle Ages, which has become our favorite article of all time in the previous two weeks, and upon which we are relying heavily for this episode, Richard Unger notes how, at one point around 1350, Amsterdam, Enkhuizen, Brielle, and eight other towns from the Low Countries have been given the right to participate in herring fishing in Scania, where they were allowed to bring the fish to shore to be cured. Many of them would certainly have witnessed the giving process on Skarnur Peninsula. And this is most likely how gibbing actually became adopted by Dutch and Flemish fish handlers in the lowlands, by association with places where it was already happening. Of course, maybe a Willem Bokelzone did introduce the idea into Dutch tradition in his town of Beerfleet, which became a major herring port in the low countries, it's fair to be said. But even if he did, then he almost certainly learned about it rather than devised it himself. Most likely is that the idea to gib came through the course of things like travel and cultural diffusion from a variety of people who picked up tricks and life hacks on how to best gut a fish and then either did it, told other people about it, or both. The Dutch word for gibbing is kaken. And pickled herring produced in the Low Countries was known as kark herring. Joining the Danes from Scania in producing very well-preserved herring meant that local herring began to be seen more on the continent. 
By the 1330s, Flemish merchants were selling their herring in France, a product that would be known in French, I assume, as cacaring, but is directly derived from the Dutch cacaring. The French word for pickled herring, by the way, bet you didn't know that was Dutch. This early date suggests that gibbing had already found its way to the Low Countries. Cacaring was also entered into Dutch toll records in 1377. By the end of the century, French merchants were picking up carcaring in Zeeland and Flemish carcaring was being sold at ports in Flanders, such as Slaus in 1395. So indeed, the act that Willem Bokelzoon is credited with was an important one that did begin to see significant changes in how herring was sold in the lowlands. The increase in Dutch carcaring in Flemish markets provided more problems to the platter of perpetual pressure from which the prince and the patricians in Flanders had to partake. Hansa merchants in Flemish cities fought stiffly to protect their imported tonharing from Scania against incursions by the local Dutch equivalent, Karkaring. Their angst only increased due to how vulnerable the Scania herring industry could be to massive unpredictable interruptions. A poor season or bad weather, war or other major issues in the north might open the door for Dutch herring in Dutch markets. With the rise of Karkaring, tensions between the Hanseatic League and fishing towns and villages in the Low Countries, specifically Flanders, Holland and Zeeland, began to surface. This was a delicate situation which, in Flanders, had to be balanced carefully by the Count. The conflict between Scania herring and Dutch herring had direct implications on a culturally important consumer good, because remember, for 130 days of the year, those who could afford it would eat fish. Domestic fishing loads were essential to the availability of fresh fish to the local market. If Dutch herring was cured, it was more likely to make its way to foreign markets because of the distance it could be carried, and so there would not be enough supply to just replace the local demand for fresh fish. As carcaring had more value in more markets, greater portions of a catch would be committed to the preservation station. In 1396, an edict was passed by the Flemish Count, which banned the landing of any types of preserved herring in Flanders. This derived, firstly, from protestations by merchants in Bruges, who had interests in protecting the Hanseatic trade of tonharing, and secondly, by the need to protect the supply of fresh fish to local markets. But this ban was quickly ended, after it became pretty clear that merchants in Flanders were simply going to travel to Zeeland, where the ban did not apply, and they would just buy preserved herring there instead. When the ban was ended, the new rules, however, only allowed fishermen in the town of Beerfleet to sell cured herring, and only for a certain four-week period, in specially marked barrels, which were not allowed to be sold in Flanders, but which were only for export. These limitations were a massive concession to the anxious Hansa merchants. What didn't lessen their anxiety, but greatly exacerbated it, was the fact that they were still subject to the vagaries of nature. That giant milt fest that we spoke about earlier, where 
Heaps of hornbag herrings would lather the seas around them and each other with their reproductive retinue was something that merchants and fishermen could not control. Whether it was due to overfishing or a climatic change in weather conditions between the 1390s and 1420s, Scania's supplies of herring began to dwindle. There would even be years of catastrophe when herring simply wouldn't show up to the party. That circumstance is a contender for the saddest party ever. Five Danish fishermen alone on a boat in the early 1400s looking at an empty sea where they had expected to see literally millions of fishy friends. When tonharing couldn't be supplied by hands of merchants, this did give an opportunity for the Dutch fishermen to fill that gap. And it was at this point that the Dutch herring industry began its astronomical rise. As we've seen, gibbing was nothing new. They'd been exposed to it and they'd been using it already for years. What was truly revolutionary around this time was the way that they solved the problem of needing to return to port daily in order to bring the herring in fresh. And the solution for it was magnificent and simple. Dutch and Flemish fishermen began to conduct the process of gibbing on their ships rather than take their loads to be cured on land. Ta-da! Brilliant. And it was this innovation, rather than the mythical act of Willem Bokelzone, which actually changed the game. At this point, we must rely on our imagination, but given that the historical record for so long has relied on a fictionalized story of Bokelzone and his fancy knife-wielding, we're happy to do that. It is easy to imagine a scene of lowlander fishermen out on their boat and due to return to land, but instead, for some reason, staying out at sea and either deciding to or being forced to gib the herring themselves. Perhaps they thought there was a bigger catch for them the next night if they did stay out and they didn't want to miss it. Or perhaps they were blocked from landing at the English coast by pirates or by English ships putting a cantankerous blockade on the French. Maybe it was a planned thing or an emergency measure taken so as not to lose whatever fish had been caught. Either way, somehow, at some point, or maybe at various points independently, Dutch and Flemish fishing vessels began to also operate as floating gibbing stations. What this meant is that they could now set sail and take their ships as far north along the Scottish coast as they wanted and further, heading into deeper, more herring-laden waters where they could remain until their holds were absolutely packed with pickled herring. Now, being able to stay at sea for much longer, they could also become more intimate with the happenings of herring, furthering their understanding of things like the seasons and regions and where herring went to and when they were their fattest and their best for commercial purposes. This surge towards herring also opened the door for other innovations, as such trends tend to do. At some point in the 1300s, somebody created a type of net called a vleet. These were wide and sprawling, about 30 meters long and 15 wide, and extremely effective in catching massive holes of herring. They would be tied together to make an even bigger net and to make them operable for the fishermen on board. The first open Dutch fishing boats to use the vleet would carry up to 40 of them at once. Soon, though, 
Ships across the lowlands would be dragging more than 75 of them each, tied together, scooping up hundreds of thousands of herring at once. Shipbuilding was another area that tied in beautifully with this fishy fortune. For a long time already, it had been one of the main industries in Holland, Zeeland and Friesland, and as necessity drives development, so did Dutch ships develop to cater to the growth of the herring industry. The cog and the corver were styles of ships with large hulls already, and so they could carry more stuff in them, and cogs had originated in the lowlands by the 10th century already, and by the 14th century, they were being widely used in Northern Europe, especially amongst the Hanseatic trade networks. For Dutch fishermen, cogs became perfect in combination with the large vleet nets, and soon became equally central to the whole industry. But over the latter half of the 14th century, Dutch shipbuilders began modifying cogs even more and more, catering to the needs of herring fishermen. Dragging such massive nets meant needing specialized ships to balance out the immense force. The boats became shaped to have bigger holds and more capacity to carry and haul the nets and the catch. By the beginning of the 15th century, this evolved into something called the Harding Base, or Herring Bus which essentially was a floating herring factory. Up to 30 sailors would work on each bus, fishing, gibbing, and packing herring for up to eight weeks at a time before returning to port. The superiority of the herring bus meant that Dutch fishermen could travel into deeper waters where herring stock were more reliable and less subject to the vagaries of shallower coastal waters. More reliable herring meant higher yields, which could be preserved for longer, which could be sold into more distant markets. This all led to more profits, which could be used to invest in more buses, or perhaps to take part in other commercial activities during the herring off-season, such as increasing the grain trade from the Baltics, or the import of the salt necessary to preserve the fish from places like Portugal and Spain and France. By the end of the 15th century, the Dutch would be the ones selling cured herring to the Hansa towns, which was a 180 degree turnaround in fortune. The growth of the herring industry had different impacts in different areas of the lowlands. In the northern coastal areas of Zeeland and Holland, there were also certain social and political conditions that existed, which seemed to favor this boom of industry and to allow its growth in a way that was different from in Flanders. The right to trade was something that was granted by a lord, as was the right to hold a market. This was the same in both Flanders and Holland. Taxes and duties had to go upwards, and the best way for lords to know how much of a product had come through their territory and how much money they were owed was to create a staple port for that good. That way a central body could do things like run quality control and regulate the money flow. As we know, the count in Flanders at first suppressed carcaring, trying to cater to the lobbying of Hanseatic merchants there. In Holland, however, although Amsterdam was in league with the Hanseatic um, League, there was no Hanseatic pressure in towns like The Hague and Leiden. Also, there were countless little fishing villages and towns all along the coast, all getting involved. So even though lords in Holland attempted to make staples for cured herring, such as in Beerfleet, Hoston and Narda, the egalitarian nature of herring fishing in Holland meant 
all the other towns just protested or simply ignored it. Eventually, the idea was done away with completely, and small towns and villages were able to continue growing with the herring industry. Townspeople could invest in fishing operations or get work as crew or in some other role. Also, whereas in Flanders, or even also in England, every part of the coastline fell under the direct rule of some seigneurial lord, in Holland, there is no record of a lord gaining rights to a beach market. Fishermen in Holland could just bring their boat up onto the sand, set up shop, and sell what they caught without having to pay dues that they certainly would have owed on an English or Flemish beach. In Holland, there was also no tithe levied by the church on sea fish, and this was not the case in other areas. In Holland and Zeeland, most rights to a tithe stemmed out of the 11th century, and by the 14th century, they'd been appropriated by seigneurial lords, lay lords. Tithes had to be approved by the Pope, and it was way more difficult for a bunch of random lay lords in the far-flung swamp of Christianity's corner to get a tithe approved than it had been for the ecclesiastic power brokers in the 11th century. As the commercial sea fishing industry only developed in Holland in around the 13th century, no new church tithes were able to be made around them. So the combination of all these things formed the solution to the problem facing Dutch fishermen. They could sell their vast quantities of fish, which they had preserved themselves at beach markets in Holland and Zeeland for a good price and without the overheads that they would have needed elsewhere. It was overall a cheaper and more profitable option. Flanders, as we well know, had a set of social, political, economic and geographic conditions that were all its own being caught between major powers, having a powerful prince as a ruler, but also being the home of fiercely independent and rich cities in which merchants, landowners, and workers all fought for power amongst themselves. The herring industry had to enter into this, and it was eventually taken over in Flanders by the same wealthy urban elite in towns like Bruges and Ghent as most other industries. But the small fishing villages and towns in Flanders were not able to prosper as much as they were in Holland. The reason we decided to dedicate an entire episode to the beginning of the Dutch herring industry over 600 years ago is not merely because we, unlike many vegetarians, think fish are more than just an expensive and unfeeling substitute for meat. Herring provided a product that had demand in markets all around Europe, Innovations in the low countries, in things like making nets, onboard gibbing, and shipbuilding, allowed the Dutch to take over a whole industry, one which relied on international trade cooperation and large initial investments, one which needed many highly skilled and many unskilled workers cooperating, one which required the import of the necessary raw materials to turn an unfinished product into a marketable one and one which required merchants to then sell it throughout the continent, and bookkeepers and accountants to make sure that everybody received their share of the profit. This was setting up the foundations for what would later become a transcontinental trade system, which did much the same, albeit on a grander scale. As for Willem Bokelzoon, whoever he was and whatever he did, his name belongs now to history. 
even if only as the personification of this period of technological innovation in gutting fish. Although we'll never know what role he really did play, if any, in the process of moving Gibbing onto ships, it is his name which has filtered down throughout the ages and is the one which is now still so remembered. In the 1660s, in the period just after the successful Dutch revolt against Spain, sorry, spoiler alert there, a stained glass window was created in Beerfleet in honour of Willem Bokelzone and of his supposed invention of Karkin. In it, he's wearing orange, blue, and white, which were the colours of the new Dutch national flag. In one hand, he holds a knife, and in the other, he's holding a herring. By the 1600s, the Dutch herring industry would be so entrenched in the new national identity that some of its biggest towns, like Enkhuizen, would bear crowned herrings on its city coat of arms. You can still see many buildings today in cities across the Netherlands featuring herrings in their architecture. The herring industry would even infiltrate the language with the Dutch equivalent of the English expression like sardines in a can, translating to like herring in a barrel. So if you've been listening to this episode while commuting to work, on a really busy train or a bus, or if you're standing in an elevator with 10 other people, we hope our little interlude into the salty depths of medieval fishing has given you at least one new way to describe how you're currently feeling, like herring in a barrel. Hopefully, however, unlike your experience as a fish, your day gets better and will not finish with a guy called Willem sticking a knife into your gills and eviscerating you for profit. And that, folks, is the end of our wander down the path into the philosophical musings of being a herring in the North Sea in the 1300s and what this meant for the early foundations of Dutch international business. Next time, we will return to the Dukes of Burgundy and how they would come to create a political unity over the Low Countries. But before we finish, we want to give a massive thank you to our newest patrons who have shown their love for the show by giving us cold hard cash on patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. We show our love to them by giving them each episode ad free. So if you hate ads and or love us, then why don't you be like Ninka van Ghent, whose name means from Ghent, but confusingly isn't from Ghent. She was actually the first person to contact us when we had a slight technical problem when releasing an episode a few weeks back. She messaged us fewer than 45 minutes after the show had been released, telling us that we'd messed up. It's good to know that people wake up at 7.45am on a Monday morning and think, you know what, I want to listen to the history of the Netherlands. So thank you, Ninka van Ghent, or Genners, as she's known to her mates, us. Next up is Randy Gout who we call Trout, probably because we're obsessed with fish at the moment, but also because his name, Randy Gout, suggests a really fun way to approach a bad disease and, you know, Trout seemed the safer option. Cheers, Trout. Next up is Marco de Veerd, Mr. Normal, Norm. He pledged us 2 bucks fifty per episode. What a legend. So we're going to say his name two and a half times. Marco de Veerd. Marco de Veerd. Norm. 
Last but not least is Jeroen Peters Panman. And that is just a brilliant name. Mr. Peter Panman from the Netherlands. I mean the Netherlands. Jeroen, you don't need a nickname. You just keep being you. And everybody else should also try to be like Meneer Peters Panman. Sprinkle your fairy dust over us at patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands and help us fly to Neverland. And that's it for now. Until next time, doei. This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.